0: Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 22, hear the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, He was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. An intriguing exercise in creative imagination is to go back in history and change one crucial fact, and then imagine how things might have been had that fact been a little bit different. There was a series of articles that was published in 1960, and then it was so popular it came out as a book. It's by McKinley Cantor, and it's called What If the South Had Won the Civil War? And all he did to write this book was to change two things. There was one point at which Ulysses S. Grant was thrown from a horse very violently And when he fell, he fell very close to a dangerous rock, and he survived. Uh, But all the author did was change that to have him fall not inches from the rock, but on the rock and be killed. So he took Ulysses S. Grant out, which would have been very easily possible. And then he also had General Lee make a few different and better decisions at Gettysburg so that the South won that war at Gettysburg. And everything else flowed from that. And it's a fascinating exercise, because everything else is plausible, uh, given those two changes in the history. This is a, a genre of literature called alternate history. I'm going to ask you to play a little bit of that. Can you imagine, can you imagine what the New Testament would look like without the one we call the Apostle Paul known here as Saul. Can you imagine what it would look like? Can you imagine what the church would look like to this day without this one we call the Apostle Paul? Can you imagine how the growth of Christianity would be affected if we were to take Paul out of the picture? And then can you expand your the horizons of your imagination even farther and imagine how the world would be, without this one, we call the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Hard to imagine all those things, isn't it? Now, of course, God could have done it another way, with another person, but perhaps He would have sent somebody east, or south, or north, rather than mostly west. And the whole complexion of the church might be very, very different to this day. That's very hard to imagine how the New Testament, the church, the world would be, our lives would be, without the Apostle Paul. But I want you to imagine something even harder. Even harder. And that is, before what happened in this text today, it would have been even harder for anybody to imagine what we read today. It would have been even harder to imagine... That this one, Saul of Tarsus, would become a Christian and become the one who would take the gospel to the ends uh, or, or toward the ends of the Roman Empire. So I just I say that because I want us to I want us to remember how surprising uh, and and unanticipated this narrative is. We are so used to hearing about the conversion of Saul. And so used to the the role that Paul plays in the New Testament, the church, and in our lives as we read his letters, that we we often fail to how realize how surprising and shocking this event was. Um, verse one picks up from chapter eight, verse three. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 3, it says, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then there are the intervening stories about Philip, and then we get back to Saul. And it reads very naturally, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, Now, we remember that he was approving of Stephen's death. So we know for certain that he participated at least morally in the the death of Stephen. But we also find out that these threats of death, that he was breathing out threats, murderous threats, they were not vain threats. Because we read later in chapter 22, verse 4, and in chapter 26, verse 10, he refers to other people, other Christians, who were killed in these threats persecutions and he was not content to persecute only those who were in Jerusalem but he went to the the chief priests and he asked for authority to go to Damascus because he had heard that there were Christians in Damascus and he wanted to go and to bring them back bound it says men and women bound 150 miles bound back to Jerusalem for arrest and for prosecution and for potentially for execution. Now, it's not clear that the chief priest had authority to do this. Because he didn't have authority in Damascus, politically speaking. He didn't have any real authority, politically speaking. However, the Romans, as long as the Jews were behaving among themselves, and not causing problems for the Romans, they tended to to allow the chief priest a great deal of authority in political matters, internal political matters for the Jews. But it's not apparent that he had authority to send somebody to arrest somebody in another city. And... um, it's, it's, it's important to recognize, though, that if we look at Stephen's death, that was an extrajudicial killing. That was outside of the law as well. And if we look at persecutions in the first century, or persecutions up to this day, guess what? Persecutions are often not legal Persecutions often do not care about laws that protect people's lives. And so, even if he didn't have the the authority to do this, it looks like he was able to get away with it. And also, it's not clear if Saul meant to bring back native Damascenes, people from Damascus, or if he was just going after those who had escaped, fled from Jerusalem, and the persecution there. Likely the latter, because you'd think it would be very difficult for him to go and take people out of their native city to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. But however that might be, I want you to notice something that is ironic here. And that is this. The persecution in which Saul participated was the reason why there were Christians in Damascus to begin with. Now, we don't know about the the native Damascene Christians. We don't know how they received the gospel. But the fact that there were Jerusalemites who were in Damascus, and they were continuing in their faith, that was because of the persecution in the first place. In other words, Saul and those who were persecuting Christians in Jerusalem made their lives more difficult by persecuting them. That is to say, they made it more difficult to contain this movement of Christianity that they wanted to snuff out by persecuting them and sending them out. And we heard a sermon about that persecution that all of them fled. Perhaps some of them eventually came back, but many of them, including Philip, as we saw last week, did not go back to Jerusalem. So they they brought this on themselves. They, they opened the, the, the world to Christianity through this persecution. And this is what persecution does. If we would ask the question, does persecution hurt or help the church? It's kind of a trick question. Because the answer is yes. Yes, it does. If you would ask somebody in Jerusalem, does persecution hurt or help the church? They would say it hurts the church. We were growing, we were thriving, we were developing, we were multiplying quickly, and now we've been decimated. And a number of our people have died, and later we find there was a famine, and they, they weren't able to provide for themselves. And so it, it harmed the church in Jerusalem. But if you had asked people in, in Caesarea, if you would ask people in, in, uh, in Damascus, if you would ask people in Antioch, and so on, does persecution help or hurt the church? They would say, oh... Well, it certainly helped us, because it has gotten the gospel out to us. So, it's a double-edged sword, and persecution does this. The first persecution weakened the church in Jerusalem, and strengthened the church elsewhere. Now, it says here, if we go back to chapter 9, it says that he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. There were many Jews in Damascus, and that's why they had synagogues, plural, they had more than one uh, synagogue. And that if he found anyone belonging to the way, the way and this is the first time that we find that expression in the book of Acts, referring to Christianity as the way." Five times it refers to Christianity as the way, and three times it's expanded. Uh, there are three other expressions: the way of salvation chapter 16, verse 17, the way of the Lord, chapter 18, verse 25, and the way of God, chapter 18, verse 26. And although this is a simple name, the way, we're not sure where it came from, if Christians chose this name for themselves, or how this happened, but this is a simple name, it emphasizes what the gospel does. It emphasizes what the gospel is, And it emphasizes what the Gospel does. What does the Gospel do? It is it is the message that takes us to God. It is the pathway to God. It is the way to get to God. And so it's appropriate that this message about how to get to God through faith in Jesus Christ, who is God, became man, lived according to the law, died for our sins was raised from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven. That message is how we get to God, by believing it. And so, it's appropriate that it be called the way. But it also, with a little bit different intonation, it emphasizes or reveals why Christians get persecuted in the first place. We usually say, the way. But what if I say it this way? The way, the way, and that's how we should read this, because Christianity was not just saying that Jesus is the way to God, they were saying Jesus is the way to God. And it's always been the case that if you want to practice your faith, that uh, there is the possibility of doing that, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally. But, but if you just keep to yourselves and say, I have my own way to God, for the most part, nobody will bother you. You can, you can fly under the radar with that sort of faith. I have my, my own personal way to God. But if you begin to say, as Christianity has always said, Jesus is the way to God, and the only way that you can get to god is through faith in jesus now you have crossed a line you have crossed a line in the roman empire which allowed a multiplicity of gods and you have crossed a line in the relativistic west as well now you're being offensive now you're being exclusivist now you are being um you are being absolutist and you are being bigoted, and so on, and there are a number of different, different names you might be called, simply by insisting that Christianity is the only way to God. But, that is not a boast. And this is what we Christians need to understand. That's not a boast. If we say that, that the gospel message is the, message is the only message that will enable us to be in a right relationship with God, we are not boasting about ourselves, about what we have discovered, about what we have made up, about our religion that we have developed. We are simply repeating what Jesus said. And if we are going to say that we are followers of Jesus, we are believers in Jesus, then we are not at, at liberty to change what Jesus himself said. If we are going to be Christians, followers of Christ, then we must affirm what Jesus said. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. And we are not boasting. We are giving thanks that God has revealed Himself to us through His Son, Jesus. And if Jesus is who the New Testament presents Him to be, then, of course, He is the only way to God. He is the Son of God who has become man. How many are there of them? There is only one. And there is only one candidate for the eternal God who has become man. It is Jesus. And so, He is the only way to God. Now, we're still in the first two verses, but we will get to the narrative now. And we say, pick up in verse 3, that as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and if you have heard any stories from the book of Acts, you probably have heard this story. As he approached the, the city of Damascus, he had an encounter along the way. And that encounter is presented as a theophany, an appearance of God. It has the trappings, the language of theophany, a voice from heaven, a a light from heaven. And this is, this is, uh, these are some of the elements that we find in the Old Testament of, of God showing up, of God appearing to humans. And the speaker interrupts Saul in his way. There's a, a, a blinding light, and the, the speaker directs himself to Saul. And the speaker asks him a question. And the question is simply this. Why are... Are you persecuting me? Now, whoever this speaker might be, he identifies with those whom Saul is persecuting. So, persecuting Christians is persecuting this speaker. You cannot cannot persecute Christians and not persecute the, the speaker of this question. And then Saul, understandably, wants to know who this speaker is. And so he says to him, Who are you, Lord, now, this word, Lord, has a range of meanings. Uh, It can mean, Sir, and sometimes in the New Testament, that's what it means, Uh, Sir. Um, It can also go all the way up to meaning, God Himself, as a, a New Testament translation of God's personal name in the Old Testament. What does it mean here? Well, probably more than Sir... Because he has just had a, an experience that, that, that feels like a theophany, the voice of God. And so it is, it is at least a recognition that the speaker is, is superhuman. That he has been, been addressed by, by something related to the divine. And then the speaker identified himself to Saul. And he said this, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Now, that, that expression, there's hardly any other way to say it that simply, but you will recall from the Gospel of John, the I am statements uh, that reflect the, the, the name of God in the Old Testament, that the God is the one I am, who I am. There may be a reflection of that here as well, but he said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 5. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So if you persecute Christians, you are persecuting Jesus. That's how closely Jesus identifies with those who are His. And then He says, He doesn't enter into any more conversation with Saul. But He just says, Get up, go to the city, and I'll tell you what to do. And so... It says in verse 7, "...the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one." Later, there are two other accounts of this incident, in chapter 22 and chapter 26. Later we find that they heard something, but they didn't understand the conversation. So they heard the noise, they heard the voice, but they weren't privy to this private conversation. They knew something remarkable had happened. And then Saul rose from the ground, apparently with help, His eyes were opened, but he didn't see anything. So blinding was the light. And so here was Saul led by the hand into Damascus. And then in verse 9 it says, For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. We don't know why he didn't eat or drink. If he was fasting, or if he simply couldn't. He couldn't. He was so stunned and startled. But he had three days. He had three days to think about three words. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. He had three days to think about those three words and what those three words might mean for truth, for the Old Testament Scriptures, for the Messiah, for His own life as well. Now, the Lord then appeared to a man named Ananias, and the account is compressed here a bit, because... If you look at verse 10, it says a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, the Lord, and by the way, if you go down to verse 17, we find out that the Lord here refers to Jesus. Because when Ananias goes and talks to Saul, he says, the one whom you met on the way, whom we now know to be Jesus, sent me. So this vision is a vision uh, given from, from the Lord Jesus, so, in this vision, he says, Ananias, um, rise, go to the street called Straight. Interestingly, that street is still there in Damascus. A little bit moved from its, uh, its place, its older place, but it's still there. A main thoroughfare, I guess. And at the house of Judas, look for a man named Saul, uh, of uh, Tarsus named Saul. First time we know he's from Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision. Now, here's what's compressed. We don't get this vision. But we know now that there are three visions. There's the, the, the vision on the road. There is the vision to Ananias. And then there is a subsequent vision to Saul as well. And all we know about that is what Jesus tells Ananias, that in that vision, Saul sees a man named Ananias, who is going to come and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. And so he says, Ananias, I've already prepared Saul for this. And now I'm preparing you, so go to this house, and you will find him there. And Ananias, not unwilling, but asks for some, some clarification here, because he says, I've heard about this man. I've heard about this man. So it's interesting. So this Ananias is not from Jerusalem. He, he seems to be from Damascus. But the word had gotten out. The word had gotten out about Saul... And, of course, those who had fled from Jerusalem to Damascus would have known about that. But not only that, the word had gotten out that he had gotten letters from the chief priests in order to go and to to arrest those who were in Damascus. So, he knew all about this. This seemed to be public knowledge about Saul's plans. But then the Lord says in verse 15, "...go..." For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, um, this is a strange, a strange order here. And probably Gentiles here, we should translate nations. It, it doesn't have a, a, um, an article here, a definite article. It doesn't say the Gentiles. It just says nations. The, the ethnic groups. So it probably is that uh, I'm going, he's my chosen instrument to carry my name before nations and kings and the children of Israel. And that's an, an odd order, isn't it? Because as we, as we think about it, you would think it would be first the children of Israel. That's where the gospel starts. And then, then to the nations. And then when the rumbling happens in the nations, then it would be before kings. But, he says, I'm going to send him to nations, and kings, and children of Israel. And if we look at the ministry of Saul, that's what happened. Now, he did this simultaneously. He would go to the synagogues, he would preach to the children of Israel. But that didn't work out so well for him, so he says, I'm going to whom? I'm going to nations. And by going to nations, he got to speak to whom? He got to speak to kings. And then what was Paul's desire that he tells us in Romans? By going to nations, by getting to speak to kings, he hopes that he will also stir up his own people, the children of Israel, to jealousy and to envy, so that they too might come in to the Gospel and to receive faith, receive Jesus through faith in Him. Now, he says here then, rather ominously, and this prepares us for the rest of this, this book, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So twice here, he refers to my name. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And this was the case in the life of Saul. And this is always the case as well throughout all time whether little or much there will be suffering involved in getting the gospel out to the nations now i personally even though i had the privilege of being a missionary for many years i know very very little personally speaking of what this means however i do know that if we are going to get the gospel to the the farthest reaches of the earth it will take sacrifice on the part of the senders and it will take suffering on the part of the sent. And if we do not make these elements part of our calculus, then we will not be able to send or to go effectively and we will be surprised when these things happen and will not be prepared for them. One of the one of the I would say one of the greatest experiences of my life I don't know if I'm exaggerating. I I try not to use superlatives too much. But one of the top experiences of my life was to get to go to Seoul, Korea. I actually just stopped in Seoul, Korea for a few days. I was going elsewhere, and that was a stop. We had a friend there, and another missionary and I got to stop in Seoul, Korea, and he took us around this amazing city of Seoul, Korea. took us to the demilitarized zone, took us to visit his own town, and so on. He gave us this amazing tour. But one of the places he took us was the Foreign Missionary Cemetery. The Foreign Missionary Cemetery. And... One of the things that impressed me about Seoul, Korea... Two things impressed me about Seoul, Korea. How amazingly advanced it is. It is a very modern city, a very clean city. It's, it's an amazing city to visit, the infrastructure there. That impressed me. And the other thing impressed, that impressed me about Seoul, Korea, were the churches all over the place. There were steeples and crosses and Christian symbols and Christian schools... And Christian universities, they were all over the place. And I thought, how? How did that happen? And then, after I got to see that, we went to the Foreign Missionary Cemetery. And I had my question answered. And it was an amazing experience because when the, the directors of the, the cemetery found out that we were missionaries, all of a sudden we became royalty in their eyes. They invited us to a private lunch with them. They showered us with gifts. They asked us to look at their translations into English to help them out. And so it was an amazing experience. But they gave us these gifts. And as we walked around the cemetery, we saw very many headstones. And these headstones, some of them had epitaphs on them. Many of the headstones were... Very little headstones of infants who had died, some of them without ever being named. Many infants had died there. But there were other headstones of, of, of adults and children. And they gave us these cards. And on these cards are some of my favorite epitaphs. And I'm going to read them to you because I want to remind you of what it's going to cost... Mm-hmm to get the gospel out to the ends of the earth. Here we have William James Hall, pioneer medical missionary to Pyongyang, Korea. Born in Canada, 1860. Died in Korea, 1894. How old was he? 34 years. His wife, Rosetta, born USA, 1865. Died USA, 1951. She had a long life and ended up coming back to the States. Their children, Sherwood, born Korea, 1893. Died in Canada, 1891. Lived 98 years. But then there's Edith Margaret, born in USA, 1895. Died in Korea, three years later, 1898. Here's a, a young lady, Ruby Rachel Kendrick. Born January 28, 1883. Died 1908. August 15, 25 years old. you know what's written on her tombstone? If I had a thousand lives to give, Korea should have them all. She had one life to give, and she gave it for Korea. That's why there are churches all over that city. And then... There's Walter Walter Virgil Johnson, born August, 1874, died March, 19, I can't make it out, 29 years old, missionary of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, and all his tombstone says is, faithful unto death. And he was. And here's one of my favorite ones, British people will appreciate this one. Homer B. Hulbert, January 1863 to August 1949, man of vision and friend of Korea. And this is what's written on his tombstone, I would rather be buried in Korea than in Westminster Abbey. And he got his wish. That's why there are churches in Korea. Because there were those who were willing to suffer to take the name of Jesus to Korea. And that's what it's going to cost. Now, Ananias obeyed. Getting back to our story. Ananias obeyed. He went. He prayed for Saul. He baptized him. In three days, Saul went from being a violent persecutor of Christians to being a baptized Christian. Now, one of the things that he was told he would receive would be the Holy Spirit, and there's no record of him receiving the Holy Spirit, but there is record of the evidence of him receiving the Holy Spirit. And that is this, that he remained in Damascus, and he fulfilled his mission. He went to the synagogues after all. He had letters from the chief priest to go to the synagogues, He got to Damascus, he went to the synagogues after all, fulfilling his mission, but when he got to the synagogues, he immediately, it says, verse 20, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. Now how would that declaration, by the way, this is the only time in the book of Acts that that expression, the Son of God, appears, although if you read the letters of Paul, you'll find the Son of God is very prominent in his theology. And usually we read that word, that expression, the Son of God, in the light of the developed doctrine of the Trinity. But in in these days, that expression that Jesus is the Son of God would have meant to the hearers that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God. And in fact, Luke spells that out for us here in verse 22, "...but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ." Jesus is the son of God, Jesus is the Christ. That was Paul's simple message in the synagogues of Damascus. And you can imagine how how great an impact this had. If you look at verse 21, all those who heard him were amazed. Of course they were amazed. And you imagine how amazed they were. They knew about Paul, Saul. They knew about what he had done in Jerusalem. They knew about the letters that he had. They knew why he had come there. And he got to the synagogues. And everybody was waiting for him to make his first move. Jumping on anyone he thought was a Christian. bounding them, Binding them and taking them back to Jerusalem. And he makes his move. And he stands up and he says, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And I will prove it to you from our Scriptures. They were amazed. They were astounded. Nobody could have predicted this. No Jew, no Christian, nobody could have predicted this would happen. This is the most unlikely event. And the the person, the person for whom it was always the most unlikely event was Saul himself. And Saul never got over the shock and the surprise. He never got over the delight of the fact that God had taken him and given him the privilege of bearing Jesus' name to the nations. He never got over that, and he also never got over the shame of being a persecutor of Jesus by being a persecutor of the church. But he didn't do what most of us do, what I do, and that is hide the things of which we're most ashamed but but but, he, but he, he, he talked about this frequently. He talked about what he was in order to emphasize what he had become in Jesus. And whenever Saul got the possibility of giving his, his testimony of faith in Christ, he said, this is what I was. I was a persecutor of the church. And because I was a persecutor of the church, I was a persecutor of Jesus, I was the worst sinner ever. But God had mercy on me. Listen to how he says this. Verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1. I thank God, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent... Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And then he praises God, "...to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen." What is he saying here? He's saying, I want to call Exhibit A of the grace of God. I want to call here to the stand Exhibit A of God's mercy I call Saul of Tarsus. I call myself to the stand. Look at me. Look at what I was. And look at what the grace of God has done to me. He saved me so that the message is clear that He can save anyone. And so the message is clear that Christ Jesus didn't come into the world to save the good people. Because there aren't any He came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I'm the worst. If He can save me, how much more can He save you? So, what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway as we look at this story of Saul? There are a couple of them. And one is this, that we ought never despair of anyone. Of anyone. We look at people and we say, could God ever rescue a person like that? And the answer is, He rescued Saul. He can rescue that person as well. So go on praying. Go on preaching to that person. And the other takeaway is this. We should never despair of ourselves either. And I say this to you, if you are still outside of Christ, if you are not yet believing in Christ, then I say, don't despair of yourselves. Your sins are not too great. If, if, if Christ's death was sufficient to save Paul, Saul, his death is sufficient to save you as well. And so, I urge you to trust in Christ. Even you, don't despair of yourself. And if you are already in Christ by faith, and you are wracked by, by your failures by your insufficiencies, by your inabilities, by the times you, you have not measured up to, to what you have wanted and to what the Lord wants for you, I say to you, do not despair of yourself either. If God could take the most unlikely of instruments and make Him into one of the most amazing missionaries of all times, He can do the same for you So do not despair, no matter what your past, no matter what your sins, no matter what your failings. You too can be a chosen instrument to take Christ's name to the peoples. So let's pray. Our God, we thank You that Christ came into the world to save sinners, and we know that because that's exactly what He did when he was here, that's exactly what he did after he had ascended. That's exactly what he's doing with us and with others around the globe. And we thank you that he took this this persecutor, this violent man, and made him a missionary. And so, you can make anyone who calls on you a missionary as well. And I pray, O oh God, that, that you would enable us to take heart this morning that our sins are not fatal, they're not final, they will not undo us, and they will not disqualify us. And, oh God, I pray that You would enable us with confidence to turn to Jesus once again, to go to You through Jesus who is the way, so that we might be renewed, refreshed, so that we might be lifted up from our despair, and so that we might be those chosen instruments that You can use to get the Gospel to others. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.